Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Will you stand with me? We're going to look together at Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is the Word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son... You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus, the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, we ask you to, to attend the reading and the speaking on your word this morning, that it may not be mere words, but that it may be your word, Father, coming with power, with conviction by the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. On the day on which the, the, the life of St. Jerome was celebrated, St. Jerome's Day in 1951, a date that had been carefully planned in order to commemorate St. Jerome, who was, as we all know, the saint who lived in Bethlehem for much of his life in a grotto in a little cave under a, a, a church and, and dedicated his life to the translation of the Word of God from the Hebrew and the Greek into what was known as the Vulgate the Latin, the vulgar language, the language of the common folk. When that day came, in order to commemorate the work of St. Jerome, the first translator of the scriptures of the New and Old Testament, there had been a prior translation of the Old Testament into Greek by what's known as the 70, the 70 scholars. It's called the Septuagint, which means the 70 70 scholars and a couple hundred years before Christ. But on this date in 1951, religious leaders across America joined to celebrate an event promoted as the greatest Bible news in 341 years on St. Jerome's Day, an indication of what they were celebrating, the publication of an English Bible that its sponsors, the National Council of Churches, held hopes would replace the 341-year-old King James Version of the Bible, the standard Bible of the English-speaking world for 341 years. They called and they said that this new translation, this new translation would be the Word of God in living language. And on September 30th, 1951, 3,000 religious gatherings were held sponsored by the National Council of Churches, held to commemorate and to celebrate the official release of this Bible to the general public. The very first copy, the very first printing of this Bible 
had been presented in a unique and a beautiful leather binding to the president at that time, President Harry Truman. At 12.15 p.m., it's on his official records in his presidential library. I looked it up. 12.15 p.m., he received a delegation in the White House who had come, which had come, to present him with this beautifully bound first published edition of the new translation. This translation of the Bible, which was formerly known as the Revised Standard Version, was a fairly literal translation of the Bible, rendering of the Old and New Testaments. In fact, so reliably literal that it was this Bible that served as basically the guide and the, the, the underpinnings of what we know today as the English Standard Version, which simply took the Revised Standard Version, this 1951 Bible, made a few alterations to it, and then presented it as a new translation back about 20 years ago. Despite the fact, however, that it was a fairly reliable translation, when this new Bible, the Revised Standard Version, appeared, it dropped like a rock into a sea of evangelical Christian disapproval and hatred. Never selling well, never gaining acceptance by most of those who truly believe the Bible, eventually being overtaken, well, by several versions. 20 years later, the New American Standard Bible and the King James, or uh, the Living Bible, came out in the same year. A few years after that, those two were superseded by the New International Version, which became for about two decades the Bible that pretty much everyone in the evangelical world used, the translation which became the standard translation of American Protestantism. Now, why did that Revised Standard Version of the Bible fail? Well, it wasn't ready. It wasn't that the world wasn't ready or and that the evangelical church, those who believed the Bible, weren't ready for a a fresh translation. The the new Bibles that came out in the early 70s, the Living Bible in particular, were the best sellers of the decade. I mean, they sold like hotcakes. So it wasn't that there was no one in the evangelical world ready to buy a new translation of the Bible. The reason that this translation, the Revised Standard Version, sank like a rock had primarily to do with the rendering of a few verses. In particular, their rendering of this verse that Matthew quotes in verses 22 and 23, a quote that is taken from Isaiah. This verse, 22. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. You, if you look at your footnotes, will notice that that is a, that is a quotation. A quotation given us by Matthew that is directly taken from the Old Testament. It says that the prophet had written this. The word of the Lord spoken through the prophet. That prophet was Isaiah. If you want, you can look it up in the book of Isaiah. It's chapter 7, verse 14 that Matthew is quoting here. Now, they didn't change the words of Matthew. But they did not heed Matthew when they quoted Isaiah 7, 14. In the Revised Standard Version, the prophecy of Isaiah reads... Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, 
a young woman shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A young woman. Not a virgin. In the Revised Standard Version, the word in the Hebrew, Alma, used by Isaiah, is translated young woman rather than virgin. Now, there is a word in Hebrew that technically means virgin. And that was not used. It's, this is a much less used verse or uh, word that's used in Isaiah 7, 13, Alma, than the, the more familiar word for virgin, the technical word, which is betula. The word that, that they translated young woman is a word that is... I, I, an exact English equivalent is hard to come up with. It might be the old-fashioned word maiden, which signals a young woman who is not married and has not had children yet. And so the implication is that she's a virgin, but in their translation, they decided to leave the virgin part out, the implication, and put in the young woman, which is technically correct, about this word uh, had they translated it virgin it could have been an old woman they decided to leave the virgin part out and put in the young they felt that young was more important to stress than virgin they defended it and that bible was viewed by those who take the word of God seriously forever after as a faulty guide. About seven verses like that that were really mistranslated very badly, each of them having to do with Jesus in some way out of the Old Testament. Now it would seem a defensible choice. The translators argued, well, Isaiah wouldn't know that Jesus was going to be born of a virgin. He didn't mean virgin technically or to use the other word. He used betula. So in fact... We can't even be sure that he was at least consciously prophesying Christ at all at this point. Well, the problem with their translating it young woman in Isaiah 7.14 lies in the fact that the translators of the RSV had two very weighty reasons and precedents for translating it virgin rather than young woman that they both ignored. They ignored both of them. First of these was a translation that I spoke of a moment ago of the Old Testament into the Greek that had been done hundreds of years before Jesus. And when they had the chance to translate this word in Isaiah 7.14, they used the Greek word parthenos, which means technically virgin. They had used it. So it was not a translation of this word that was not known. It was in fact understood by the people well before Christ that Isaiah was speaking of a virgin. Otherwise, the, the 70 translators would not have translated it that way. But even more importantly, there is a, a second precedent for translating the word virgin. And that's our passage. This passage in Matthew where Matthew uses that same Greek word parthenos, meaning virgin, technically, in quoting and translating Isaiah. And Matthew is inspired in doing this. The Holy Spirit is giving him the translation. The Holy Spirit is leading him in it. And so there was 
absolutely no excuse for what the Revised Standard Version did in translating young woman rather than virgin. In fact, they betrayed something of their anti-theistic, anti-supernatural bias. And it was truly a reflection of these men and of that organization, the National Council of Churches. It was a group of people who denied things like miracles, who would say, ah, you've got to take it spiritually. And they did a Bible translation that reflected their lack of belief in the supernatural nature of Christ and God. So the virgin birth excited skepticism and hostility in the day that Christ was born. We think that people said, oh, he's the so-called son of Joseph. Remember that taunt that was made of Jesus as though he were, he were an illegitimate child rather than born of a virgin. It excited hostility in the early Jewish community. One of the translators of the RSV was a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish scholar. And ever since Jesus came and was born of Mary, the Jews have translated Isaiah 7:14, young woman because it seems to be such a direct fulfillment of scripture that Christ was born of a virgin. And so the, the Septuagint is now not in favor among Jewish synagogues, and they say, that's a young woman. You understand? It excited hostility among the Jews in the days after Christ and the days of the early church, and it excites hostility today. It's funny that these, these men who, who really did question the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, who did not like that implication, did not say anything that would deny the reality of the resurrection. They didn't change the miracles where Jesus gave sight to the blind or made the lepers whole again or caused the, the, the lame to walk. None of those things were changed. They didn't deny these other miracles, but at a single point, they very much went against what the Word of God implied in a miraculous way by opposing the virgin birth. Why this hostility to that one principle, to that, that one miracle? <clears throat> and why today do so many ridicule and deny the virgin birth? What is it about the virgin birth that so enduringly excites hostility and is so opposed over time. Actually, the question is rhetorical because the answer is clear. The answer is given in our passage. The virgin birth is a sign of what? Of Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? Well, they give us a translation. God with us. The virgin birth reveals a God who is with us. That is the issue. And there lies the source of the opposition. God with us. God in the flesh with us, for us, God with us. That's the problem, the source of the hostility. Matthew quotes Isaiah. The full quote is not just about a virgin who will conceive, but behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. What is opposed here is not the mother or her condition. What is opposed here is not Mary, and her technical status, what is opposed here, is not the mother at all, but the father. Not the virgin, but her son. Not his manner of birth, 
but the purpose in his coming and in his being born. So I want to consider what's lost by the denial of the virgin birth, what is being rejected, and what is gained by accepting it and embracing it. The loss that is sustained when we deny it and the reasons why some prefer such a loss to the reality of the virgin birth, which is clear in Scripture. And I want to divide this into three parts in accord with the name Emmanuel, God with us, God with us. Each of these three parts, I want to consider what is denied and then what is lost and what is gained by affirming, what is lost by denying and what is affirmed and what is gained by that affirmation. First, God, God. God with us, God. The first and most obvious denial made by those who deny the virgin birth is the denial of the God of the Bible, the Christian God who is a trinity. The idea that is found throughout Scripture that God exists in three persons but is one to God and indivisible. God in three persons, the blessed trinity. Nothing in all the world more clearly demands submission to God's reality than miracles, and no miracle more clearly demonstrates God's involvement in his creation and his existence than his sending his son to be born of a woman. So Paul begins his letter to the Romans by writing, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, which is why we believe that Mary was also descended from David, though it's not her lineage that's given in Matthew and Luke, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what Paul says, I am an apostle of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was born a descendant of David by the flesh, declared the Son of God by his resurrection. And so in Jesus Christ, you have God and man brought together. You have Jesus who is both God and who is also at the same time man. And in both those lines, he's a descendant of a king. The great king, the monarchy of the father, the great king who sits on a throne forever and ever and ever, and who's worshiped forever and ever and ever. And the great king, the greatest king of our human kings that we've ever known, David, a man after God's own heart. King and king, descendant of two kings, the divine king, the, the human king who was promised a son that would be the son of God and who was the great king, the king after God's own heart. And so if you accept the virgin birth, what you're embracing is authority. You have to embrace authority. You're forced to deal with the son of God being born of a virgin according to the flesh but declared to be the son of God by the resurrection of his body from the dead declared the son of God by the Holy Spirit through his resurrection and the son of man the son of David by his spirit his, his physical generation in Christ these two lines both of immense authority come together one the highest human authority son of David the greatest king king of God's people, the one who reigned and made Jerusalem, the, the city of God, what it was. It was the city of David and the city of God. Highest possible human authority, son of David. 
Son of the King of God's people, no authority on earth ever more gloriously acknowledged by God. This was the king who, to whom God said, I will send a son. Your line will never end. So he is the greatest king. The great king of God's people, beloved by God. So what you have in Jesus Christ is every legend of Arthur, of the king of England, Arthur, every Arthurian legend, every claim about the, the divinity of the Caesars, and they made many claims about their, their divine nature, Every claim about a philosopher king, a great king, some of the, the Caesars who followed uh, Julius and his family were kings who were known as, as philosopher kings. They were great kings because they were so wise. Marcus Aurelius, one of those. Every poet king, every gracious, wise, and wonderful king, every story of every king who is great is a story that pales in comparison to the story of King David. He was a philosopher. He was a poet. He was a winner in battle, a general. He was gracious. He was everything. But even more spectacular than his human lineage through David, Jesus is not just the descendant of man, but the son of God. Merge these lines, son of man, son of David, son of God, son of the great king, and you have in this one man all authority in heaven and earth coalescing, coming together in him. It's all merged like a brilliant laser light in Jesus Christ. Authority, authority, all authority resides in that little baby. All authority is found on that God who died on the cross. All authority is given to him. All. And if you have not embraced Jesus as the Son of God, as the God who came in the flesh of a man, if you've not embraced him, you're a rebel against him. You're a rebel. You're a rebel against his reign and his rule and his authority. So you deny the virgin birth, right? You have to. Because if you accept that the Son of God came in the flesh, born of a daughter of David then you have to submit. And so you say instead, no, I don't believe in the virgin birth. But what you're saying when you say, I don't believe in the virgin birth is actually, no, I will not bow my knee. I will be God. I will not have God. I will be God. I will not bow my knee to any authority. The authority that governs my life is my own. So, because you hate authority, you embrace insanity. You choose to be, in, to be out of your mind and to live a life of absolute contradiction where there is no coherence, no intellectual coherence, no moral coherence rather than submit to the God who came in the flesh and who made you. You prefer folly to submission and you choose, if you're living in this day, where the reigning religion is the religion of materialism, 
that what is, is, that this isn't. I can't see God, so he's not. But this is, and the animals out there in the universe, and I can see through the Hubble, and I can see back there. These things are. So you, you choose to embrace you and you. A God that is iron and stone over a God who has power and can be born of a woman. Because you say, no, that can't happen. You're denying the authority of God. You're denying his control. And you're saying, I will live with my God being this material universe, which somehow created me and sustains me and gives me my purpose and my understanding of the world and my morality. I will embrace that God, the God of stone and iron and hydrogen and helium, over the Son of God who came in the flesh. Why do I say this? Because denying creation by the God of the Bible doesn't get rid of God. It just makes your God the processes that are in existence around you rather than the God of the Bible. It makes the will that rules everything something like you, material, visible. The process is God. The process that led to the world and the universe and you and me, there's your God. You have your God in the process. The process reigns. The process rules. That's the rule that you can't evade. That's the will that you submit to. Evolution Rocks and stones and the primordial goo is your God. Your God was born out of a vast cosmic explosion from nothing, ex nihilo, into something. He has no moral teaching. He determines no right from wrong. Your God is not a he or even a she. It's not a spirit. It's not a being. It is the inescapable law of Rocks and iron. Worship them. Worship helium. Worship hydrogen, the parts of the sun that outlast you by eternal measures. They far outlast you, even the rocks, long after you're dead with your constituent parts having gone back into the organic flow of matter. The sun and the rocks, which are not based in carbon, will continue Worship them if you will not worship the God of the Bible. You must worship them. They are your law. They are your authority. They are your beginning and your end, so worship them. But actually, in worshiping the process, these material things, you worship yourself. Because actually, you have no idea of what the process is. You imagine it. You follow dreamers who describe it. And their dreams are iron dreams, dreams of helium, dreams of carbon, dreams of hydrogen, the iron rule of a process with no wisdom, no weight, no moral authority, no sense of wonder, no grandeur, a process God that has no morality and who leaves you with no moral bearings, no overarching moral truths, but your own feelings. And so you are your God. You are your own judge. You are your own measure. You gain a life without authority by denying the God of the virgin birth. And you lose any sense of grandeur, 
and any sense of wonder beyond the organic. The most glorious thing in your universe, the most powerful, is the pictures that come out of the Hubble Space Telescope. There is your God. There is your judge. There is your measure. What a loss. Human beings live in thrall to a sense of destiny and purpose that goes beyond the grave. A calling. Winston Churchill said at the conclusion of World War II of his coming to the prime ministership at the height of the, of the crisis at the gravest hour and the long life of his nation, Great Britain, he said, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. I thought I knew a good deal about it all. I was sure I should not fail. Winston Churchill was no Christian, but he understood there is a destiny and a purpose and a calling. And there is. But there is none if the process is your God. It's just the synapses of your brain acting in a weird way and giving you a sense of sort of deja vu so that you recall something about the present moment because your mind is not quite in sync. The denier of the virgin birth says to Winston Churchill, nonsense, Winston. There's no such thing as destiny. No such thing as a calling or an appointment, it's chance, it's fate, it's the stars, nothing more. No controlling God, no glory beyond the grave, just the process. Your sense of a calling and a destiny is wrong. You're just one atom in the vast universe and there is no plan or design or destiny with you at its center. You are self-deluded. Destiny demands a destiner. And our universe can't have that. If you deny the virgin birth, the God of the Bible who came in the flesh, you're a beast by your own self-definition. Your dreams of truth and glory and morality and purpose and hope beyond the grave, beyond the power of man, they're just dreams. They're vanity. You just have a glorified sense of self. You're no different than the cat. You're dust, and to dust you will return, and dust is dust. It's part of the flow of the process, but nothing more. So you deny the virgin birth. You deny that Jesus was born of a virgin because you say it's impossible, and what you deny is the reality of the God of the Bible. You declare the laws of the universe, as you call them, the laws, you declare them the king, that God can't violate them, that there's no maker, they just came. Yet man is always fooling with the process, isn't he? Even now, man is capable of technically virgin birth. You've heard of it, it's called parthenogenesis. Parthenos, virgin, genesis, birth. Parthenogenesis, it's the creation of a human life without a fertilized egg without a, a male and now it's being done by taking egg cells and stem cells and the process of division that's known as cloning parthenogenesis virgin birth oh now i believe in virgin birth because man can do it but i'm not going to believe in god i'll only believe what i see with my eyes what i know with my mind you worship a god of iron you worship a god of helium the process 
That's your God. This is what's lost. God, authority. Second, the second word is God with us. With, God with. Second obvious denial by, made by those who deny the virgin birth is denial of the God of the Bible. The Christian God, the one true God, coming in human form to be with us. God with. God in relation to. With as a preposition. And if you don't recall, preposition is the type of word that governs and usually precedes a noun or a pronoun and expresses a relationship to another word or element in the clause, as in the man on the platform, or she arrived after dinner. God with, God with, God obviously in relation to, God in relation to. To be with someone is to tie ourselves to another, to enter into life with another. So God says to us, fear not, for I am with you. I am with you. He says it to his people. My strength is your strength. My presence is your hope. My care is your confidence. God with us. God with us. In our midst. And that's what's denied. That God is a God of relationship. A God of prepositions. With us. In fact, there are more superlative prepositions in this in the bible god with us the bible says christ in you the hope of glory the holy spirit living in you god with you god in you you lose these prepositions you lose this relationship this is what goes i don't want a god who's with me i don't want a god that is in relationship to me I'd rather have a world of iron and storm and steel where I mean nothing to the process. That way I owe the process nothing. That way I can do what I want because the process has no claim on me. The world without the virgin birth is a world in which the dreams are made by steel bodies, really. There's the idea called solipsism that's held by some, some who are called epistemological philosophers. They they deal with how we know things. That the world is unreal, that we create it in our minds, that our consciousness is the thing that exists and nothing more that we have imagined the world, the concrete world, the organic world. You are part of my imagination. We are imagining consciences, consciences, consciousnesses, let me put it. We are imagining and the whole world is our imagination. It's called solipsism. So if you meet a person who acts as if they're the only real person in the world, very, very selfish, you say, oh, you're a solipsist. We've taken that word from the philosophers and we've made it an adjective for certain type of people. So our feverish imaginations are the world. We know nothing certain outside our own mind. And in a sense, this is the idea of those who reject the virgin birth. Oh, I create the world. I make it up. but, But actually... The reality is, if you want to say that the universe is the creation of a fevered mind and a fevered consciousness, well, it would much more logically be the creation in the mind of a rock than in you because, I mean, you're this much in the span of eternity, in the the lifespan of a rock. So you're the dream of a rock. 
You're a helium dream. The, the process has imagined you, and you don't exist. It's living, and you're not really. Because, I mean, you fill this room with all the processes and with all the physical manifestations of that process, and you put you in it, and you are just an atom in this room. Which is more real, the process, the iron and the steel, or you? The loneliness of a world without a God who is, without a God who loves, without a God who enters into life with us, who is with us. This loneliness is absolute. It means you're alone, absolutely alone. There is no force ultimately determining. There is no force ultimately siding with you. Your mother loved you, but she was there for a time and she's gone and you're alone. And had your mother to make a choice between you and her, well, we know how many mothers make that choice every, every day in America with abortion. No, you don't have anyone who's really for you. You're alone. And you say, my father, yeah. And he will die if he loves you. And if he didn't love you, then he wasn't for you. Sister, brother, well, they move on, don't they? Husband and wife, uh, you would hope that that might be something that would be for you for a lifetime, but half of all marriages end in divorce, so we know that that can't be trusted. So you turn if you deny God with us to yourself you turn inward trusting only yourself and you create your own metaverse right where you are king and where everything cares for you and where you're loved and you live in the metaverse in your mind metaverse can be facebook's metaverse and it can be the the metaverse of drugs and it can be the metaverse that's created by drinking yourself to sleep every night and getting outside yourself and looking at yourself with the kind regard that you wish the universe had for you. You live in your metaverse because there's no God. There's no relationship. It's a lonely world without God. It's a cruel world. You escape that world only by embracing the cruelty yourself and becoming a user and an abuser and saying, I'll master this. Or by turning inward and creating your metaverse in that way. Without God, you're either an abuser or you're living in yourself. Third, us. God with us. The idea that God would be with us is wonderful. Us, plural, and a reference to you and me. God with us. Now, of course, the fact that there is a thus means that there is a definable them. Us, them. You can't have an us if it's universal. The, the word loses its meaning if everyone is always included. So an us must imply a them, right? God with us, not with them. It's absolutely obvious in the in this name, God with us, with you, and not with them, if you know Jesus. 
You are not God. You are not part of God. If the God of the Bible is the true God, God is not the universe. You are not in the flow of the pantheism of the age. You're not God. God is not some faceless, nameless, heartless process. He is a person in Jesus Christ who is either for you or he's against you. No real God is ambivalent. I don't care. No God, if he's a real God, he cares. He has a purpose. There is a destiny. And so God is either for you or he's against you. He is not an indecisive God, an unknowing God of process, who doesn't know what his process is leading to and has no idea of the end, who dithers as you dither and I dither to make up his mind. He is, in a legal term, a dispositive God. He disposes, not dithering, but sovereign, not dilatory, sitting there going, well, should I stay or should I go? Decisive. He is for or he is against, and nowhere in between. So Christmas was heralded by the angels who pronounced to the shepherds in the fields, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And how could it be that they pronounced peace? Have the wars stopped? Has peace invaded every human heart? Are things now kind and sweet and everyone filled with brotherly love? Is there peace in America, let alone on earth? Do we know peace? Well, for those who embrace the Son of God, there is. God who is with us is not the God who is against us. That God is against others. The peace is a gift that God gives us at Christmas. The baby Jesus, the infant born of a virgin, came to die. The us is the bond of the blood of Christ. How far does the us extend to everyone who trusts Jesus and is covered and washed of sin by the blood of God? And who is not with God with? Who is God not with? Those who reject Jesus Christ. He's against you. You are not covered by the blood of Christ. You are not part of this us. God is therefore against you. This morning, God is offering you peace. A peace with him that will one day be an eternal peace. It will begin in this life and you'll sense it and know it. But it will go on as the blaring of a trumpet that begins soft and blares ever louder, louder, louder until the day when Christ returns, when that peace is enforced for eternity. God is offering you peace if you submit to his son, to Jesus Christ. Will you submit to Jesus Christ, the son of God, born of a virgin? Your peace, your eternal future depend on this submission. 
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of a virgin, descendant of David, Savior of the world, our peace, God with us. We praise you, Jesus Christ, for coming. We thank you, Father, for allowing your Son and for causing him to come to be the satisfaction of your justice in our place. May everyone here this morning know Jesus and his peace this Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.